Welcome, travelers, to this fascinating intellectual journey as we delve into the captivating lives of our scientists and their stories, showcasing a myriad of scientific endeavors and mysteries, the steps along the way, and the significance of their victories. This is Around the World in 80 Discoveries. From the beautiful Bavarian countryside of Germany, Lara completed a PhD in bioinformatics at the University of Cambridge before venturing to New Zealand, where she is currently doing a postdoc in conservation genomics at the Gamel Lab and the University of Otago. New Zealand is an exquisite country in terms of its breathtaking nature and rich biodiversity. In fact, it is the seabird capital of the world, and it is home to forest birds that live nowhere else on this planet. Perhaps the most iconic of those being the flightless ground-dwelling species. Look out for the stunning yellow-green plumage of the charismatic cockapoes, a species of nocturnal parrot, and the bright and beautiful blue of the takahes the largest living member of the rail family. Do so with care, for these stunning endemic species are unfortunately critically endangered. In order to ensure their protection, scientists like Lara are using genomic data to study their populations with the purpose of benefiting the conservation management of these species. This is Lara. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for coming to interview me. Absolutely. So tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? I am originally from Germany, as you've probably heard already. Um, I am from the countryside um, in Bavaria, yeah, where I um, grew up until I started studying in the city. And what's something that you recall from Bavaria? So Bavaria is a very nice place um, to grow up. It's very peaceful. Um, you're not really um, subjected to a lot of problems. Um, you have a lot of nature, but also a lot of agriculture. So I, I had a very good uh, childhood there, um, but I already realized that the nature I liked to play in was like also affected by, for example, agriculture and cities. So yeah, I guess... I guess it's Bavaria is sort of a place and in the middle of two worlds, you know, slowly developing and becoming more advanced, but still being very much countryside. Did the environment influence your interests or what you enjoyed doing? <laughs> yes, exactly. I guess this is why I mentioned it. Uh, so um, because um, I'm a biologist now or more precisely now a geneticist and um, my interest in nature from very early on influenced me in what I would study and um, how I wanted to use my time to basically contribute to uh, conserve as much nature as possible out there. So you studied biology then? Yes, so for my bachelor's and master's I, I studied biology uh, still in Germany 
And I was basically just figuring out what it means to study at all and to study biology. And I was the first one in my family to study. So um, for me, it was just, ah, biology is interesting and it will probably help me <laughs> um, to do actual nature conservation. Um, so I started and then I had don't, didn't really have a good idea of what I wanted to do with it. Um, but I very quickly learned that there is something like ecology and also ecological statistics research. Um, that help you to understand ecology and this is how I specialized more and more during my master's. Interesting so what was your master's project about? So my master's project and the thesis was really computational already so I analyzed um, um, RNA um, data so RNA is basically a functional molecule in our cells that um, decides a lot about what um, the cells are doing and so on so it was it was already very um, computational but in general during um, my masters i uh, also traveled a lot to very many different countries around the world to study different ecosystems um, to get data for example from whale populations or bird populations and to then analyze them uh, using statistics afterwards if you could highlight one of those trips that really sticks with your with your mind and your heart, which one would it be? I think it um, would probably be my trip uh, to Hanson Island in Canada, where I studied uh, orca whales during um, one amazing summer. And yeah, I was just out there in nature for several months every day and just trying to visually observe orcas and to listen to them via hydrophones, which was a very, um, um, yeah, nearly transcendental <laughs> experience and that you, you listen to a completely other form of life. Um, and I think I had like a lot of amazing experiences there and got very close to the orca whales who seem to be very intelligent um, beings and really seem to observe you rather than you observe them. Wow, sounds like an incredible experience. So what did you do after your master's? So I knew by that time that I wanted to stay in science and that I wanted to do a PhD. And the question was a little bit, what to do what to pursue my phd in uh, to best follow my aims um so i basically had to decide if i wanted to do a phd in practical ecology um, or to go more on this computational track um, learn more about that um, to actually analyze data and i decided that the second option would be the better choice because this is where i still had to learn a lot and I also at the same time I started studying more and more about um, genetics and genomics research that means um, understanding our DNA and uh, so I decided to uh, do a PhD in uh, statistical genomics which means analyzing the DNA uh, using statistics so that I could learn a lot about the computational side of biology but also to learn a lot about genomics which I um, thought I could later on use also for ecological purposes because after all all organisms have DNA and they tell us a lot about the organisms their distributions and so on like by studying a population um, of a certain species you can discover 
a lot about their past as well. So you can find out how their populations have changed um, over time and like that figure out if the current population size is for example something normal, if it has been reduced a lot by for example human impact. Um, you can even try to predict how these populations will respond to changes, um, especially nowadays climate change so on. So you can see how resilient um, populations are. There's also like a completely other approach where you can use um, DNA for, for studying um, populations in the wild. And this is called the environmental DNA approach, where you uh, just take like any samples that you can find out there, like soil or feces, even air or water, and you sequence all the DNA that you find in there. And like that, um, you can do research on the spread of the population, on the distribution, on the presence or absence of certain endangered species and so on. So basically like every small snippet of DNA can already tell you a lot um, about the ecosystem that you want to study. And so what brought you here to New Zealand? So after finishing um, my PhD, uh, I didn't really feel like going back to Germany, um, at least not going back yet. <laughs> so, um, and at the same time, I knew now was the time to um, fuse my both the two fields of research I had been working in. So the biology and ecology and also the rather computational or statistical side, including the genomics research. So um, I was looking into um, getting a postdoctoral position in conservation genomics. And this is when I discovered uh, New Zealand because this country has been very great at conserving its nature or at least at trying to conserve it. Um, and because there are so many endangered species um, here. Um, so in these terms, New Zealand uh, has been doing a real good job in that they are monitoring their species. They have a lot of genomic data of certain species already. They have the Department of Conservation that has like subgroups and um, recovery teams that take care of certain species so that you have a lot of local knowledge about um, the, um, the species that you want to work with. Um, and so I started looking into um, coming here uh, for the postdoc, um, actually already while I was still finishing my PhD in UK. So I, uh, I came here um, to do some work on the endangered kakapo um, last year. Uh, the kakapo is a flightless uh, green parrot um, that maybe we can talk a bit more about later on. Um, but like that, I got to know a lot of uh, research groups here at the University of Otago in Dunedin that are actually doing conservation genomics. And um, I um, met Neil Gemmel, so he's the professor here at the Department of Anatomy with whom I'm working now. And we were chatting a lot about possible research directions and I decided um, to join him for my postdoctoral research. So like two months ago, I arrived here and yeah, I'm finally working on what I've always wanted to work on. <laughs> and can you tell us what that is? Uh, so I... Uh, um, really want to figure out what is the best way of using genomics uh, research to support conservation. So there are many different aspects that you have to take into account. I guess one of the most important ones is money. Uh, like you don't have as much money in um, 
conservation research as you have in medical research, the field I've worked in beforehand. So the question is how much genomic data do we need of how many individuals of a species to be actually be able to say something about how resilient or how endangered they are and how much uh, data do we also need to be able to propose certain conservation measurements um, for the Department of Conservation, um, for example. And yeah, I think there are so many different approaches and I'm, I'm trying two of them. So the one has to do with really understanding the genomes of the organisms. So for this one, I'm going to study the kakapu that I've already mentioned and also the takahe, which is another endangered flightless bird, um, but not a parrot, uh, but a whale. Um, and the complete other approach is the uh, uh, environmental DNA approach that I mentioned so that you um, don't actually study the DNA that directly comes from an organism, but use whatever DNA has been shed by this organism to figure out its distribution and um, also the number of individuals that live in a certain region. So would you say a day in your research life is divided between the field and the lab? Um, unfortunately, not fully. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's definitely more lab um, than fieldwork. Uh, but I think this is just the case because um, I'm very privileged here and that for most projects, we already have a lot of data or a lot of samples. So with data, I mean like that we already have the actual um, genomic data. So someone has already sequenced um, the genomes and I'm just allowed to analyze the data now that what I'm very grateful so this is, for example, the case for the Kakapu project, where actually a huge consortium, um, the Kakapu 125 plus consortium, has created all the data and is now um, allowing researchers uh, to run analysis on it. Um, so, and then the other example is where the Takahe recovery team already has a lot of blood samples um, of the um, current extant population so that the only thing I have to do there is to go into the bed lab and actually sequence um, the DNA of the blood. And that's a quite fun fact that for birds it's quite easy to get a nice DNA because birds other than us and other mammals have nucleated uh, red blood cells, what, which means they have a lot of DNA in their red blood cells, what means can just take blood and we'll have like an amazing genome um, out of there. So um, I think this is why um, I will mostly be in front of my computer analyzing data a bit in the wet lab to process um, blood samples and sometimes uh, when I'm lucky out in the field. Um, so I will join both the Kagapu and the Takahe recovery efforts from time to time. And I've already been um, at the uh, Takahe Breeding Center, which was an amazing experience to get blood samples of uh, Kuhika. Um, that is a very special uh, Takahe <laughs> who is going to be the reference genome of the entire species. Um, so I had to get blood samples of her um, to send them to collaborators to get a very high quality reference genome for her because there's no genome available yet for the Takahe species. Mm. Um, yeah, and I just hope I will get out there as often as possible to see uh, the birds in their um, wild environment as well. Absolutely. And so far, um, how would you say you're interpreting your data? So um, as soon as we have um, like all the genetic data, so we can compare the individual genomes amongst each other. So 
um, if we take the Kakapu um, population um, as an example, we have like roughly uh, 170 different genomes. Actually, there are only a little bit more than 200 um, Kakapu out there in the world. So we nearly have the genome of all uh, individuals of the species. And we can then also compare the genomes of these individuals to determine how related they are. So we can directly basically align them together and see where um, are they different from each other and where do they look exactly the same. And at the regions where they look exactly the same in the DNA, we know that they um, must have inherited them from a common ancestor. And like this with like um, complicated uh, algorithms, or not so complicated, but you can calculate uh, relatedness coefficient, like basically between zero and one, you know, are you completely unrelated or are you super closely related? Um, so this is uh, like the first very important thing that, you know, from a population that we don't know anything about, we can suddenly say, hey, we have like a population structure and we know how the population came into being and how related the living individuals um, are with each other. And uh, we can do a lot more things with um, this sort of genomic data. So um, by uh, taking into account that it, it has evolved over like thousands of years, we can look into which genomic regions have actually adapted to a specific environment. It will make us understand how adapted uh, these uh, species are really on a genomic basis, so how resilient they might be to any change that I've been talking about um, beforehand. We can associate certain genomic regions with every sort of feature that they have, and most importantly, susceptibility to certain diseases, for example, so we can understand why some individuals get sick from an infection, why others don't. Um, but I think, yeah, in the end, so much is coded um, in the genome that there are no limits really in, in terms of um, analysis. The only limit in the case of endangered species will always be that we only have quite few samples. So we are missing the so-called statistical power to, to find uh, for example, very rare events. So if there's like uh, one region in the genome that is very rarely different than others, we might not find it. But I think in terms of all other questions, we can do nearly everything that we want with um, genomic data. <laughs> and from what you describe, I can completely see the importance of the implications that it has for conservation of not only the species that you're looking at, but in more of a general scope, how it can work towards um, conservation of the natural environment in itself? Yeah, so um, alone um, to inform certain um, recovery projects about the relatedness of the individuals is super valuable because uh, you, you can imagine here in New Zealand certain endangered species only exist in a very um, constrained um, areas by now because of the introduction of um, predators, for example. So if now the recovery team wants to choose and like put uh, some more of the, the individuals onto another island that might not be reached by predators or whatever, they really have to know how related these individuals are. Because in the worst case, they could put like a family of mom, dad, and two siblings onto the island that if they then re reproduce would re uh, result into a very inbred 
population. Inbred population means that you don't have a lot of genetic material, basically, right? Like all your genetic material will look very similar to the genetic material of the other individuals around, which means um, you, you, you don't have any diversity. And then if there's anything happening, like um, there is a disease spreading um, for which your sort of genes are very susceptible to, or the environment is changing, you are not resilient at all because you don't have anything to adapt to. And this is like where we are coming a bit into the evolutionary perspective of it, right? We need this diversity in our genes so that if anything changes, we can adapt to it. Evolution will apply and will basically just make those genes survive or reproduce at least, like end up in the next generation that will be beneficial. Um, if we don't have that anymore, because we have a really inbred population, this is not possible. And it's very probable that this population will get extinct completely. So what means is that we can, um, we can tell recover teams how related the individuals are. And like this, they can uh, choose the genetically most distinct individuals uh, to put together. Um, and also, if we can find genomic regions that make um, a species super susceptible to a certain disease, we can avoid that this genetic variant is being passed on um, to um, subsequent uh, generations. Uh, so I think there is a, a lot of potential for directly using this information in conservation. And this is exactly what New Zealand is so good at, right? Like it's directly managing the species and it being able uh, to incorporate such information. Wow. So you were telling me that you're in the position now where you've managed to merge the two fields that you're really interested in. Is this what you want to do after you finish your postdoc? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely what I um, will want to pursue. Um, I guess you should never say for my whole life, but <laughs> um, uh, what um, I can see myself doing for a very long time. So I know that I would like to stay in research. Um, so ideally, um, I can gain a lot of experience during my postdoctoral research here now and then um, become a group leader and have my own group, my own research um, happening after this. Um, where? I have no idea, but uh, it would be great to do it in New Zealand. Um, but we will see uh, what happens. <laughs> Absolutely. And now that you have a number of years of research already accomplished, what would you say is your general experience as a researcher? It's a very, very interesting job. It's, it's interesting because every day you are trying to do something that no one else has done in the very same way before. Um, so, and I think this uh, is a very weird feeling because as you have to do it on a daily basis, you have to get used to especially failure, <laughs> that a lot of things are not going to work out and the way you, you want them to work out. You have to get used to that things will always take a lot longer than you think. Um, but in the end, it's like it gives you back so much. I think I'm very often thinking it doesn't even feel like work, you know, especially because I have such amazing colleagues here as well. You know, it's a very nice um, environment. And in that I am yeah, privileged enough to be allowed to work on something that I'm actually interested in every day is great. 
but like saying that at the same time it's also um it requires a lot of um, stamina and um i think it has its pros and cons for me it definitely has a lot more pros i wouldn't want to spend my time um in another way but I also think that people have to be aware of that it's not a normal job. It also takes over your private life a bit. It, but it, this is also the case because it's your private interest that you incorporated into work. So I think it's 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 very exciting, and everyone who is thinking about doing a PhD, um, I can um, just recommend to try it out. You, you can still switch the field afterwards and having a doctor title, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Any things you wish you had known before you became a researcher? I, th I think one thing I've really learned is that uh, there are so many things that you should really not take too serious. You know, like I um, had quite a few failures during my PhD that I really suffered from. And I think um, this also comes from the fact that uh, science is so close to your personal life and personal interests. Um, but I think as far as you can, just try to avoid to being dragged into that. I mean, life always, um, you know, goes up again. Yeah. So I think that I really learned that there will be always fluctuations in your life. And um, in the end, uh, everything seems to end up very well. <laughs> like, at, at least that's what I can say at the moment. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, so you will definitely be able to, to go through it, I think. Any anecdotes you would like to share about your research experience? As I mentioned last year, I was allowed to, to go uh, and work with the Kakapo in the field. Um, so I went uh, to Venuaho, also known as Codfish Island, uh, close to Stewart Island, where the majority of the um, still alive uh, Kakapo population lives by now. Then on the one afternoon, um, I actually heard uh, that the recovery team would do some artificial insemination um, of the male birds. Mm -hmm. And as, until then, I hadn't seen a kakapo out in the wild. Now I was all actually helping them um, catching a male bird. And um, it was amazing to like have it on my lap and mm -hmm. holding it and especially smelling it. The mm -hmm. kagapu have a very amazing sort of musty smell. Mm -hmm. Like they smell just like nature a bit, you know, like uh, like a forest, a deep damp forest, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then I learned that um, this kagapu um, was uh, Gulliver. And Gulliver is actually a very uh, uh, precious um, kagapu because um, only a single kakapu was found in the fjordland. All the rest of them were found on Stewart Island. And um, uh, this kakapu that was found in fjordland is Richard Henry, um, who is already dead, unfortunately. But um, Gulliver is uh, one of his few offspring, so he is his son. So it was actually a kakapu with very valuable genes. And I was very grateful for being able to see him hold him and even smell him mm. yeah that was a very good experience <laughs> that's amazing because normally you think of the scent of a wild animal and you wouldn't associate it to something positive but it's so nice that you <laughs> recall something actually quite pleasant yeah. any highlights from your time here in New Zealand now that you've been here for a little bit I mean I, I love it very much um, it's like it's a wonderful country and especially the people are great so I'm I, I'm having a very good time here tried mm -hmm. surfing and yeah so I'm I look forward to discovering even more
What an interesting story and how truly inspirational to hear your story, Lara. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for interviewing me, Alba. And thanks everyone for listening out there. And yeah, please keep in touch about some Kakapu and Takahe research. You've been listening to Around the World in 80 Discoveries. You can tune in Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. on ORFM or stream online at or.org.nz.